0: on the tabernacle again, like I said, because of the amazing pictures and types that we see of Christ throughout the tabernacle. Perhaps you've never considered this before and are wondering how how do you get Christ from the tabernacle? Well, we're gonna look at these things in our study throughout the remainder of of Exodus over these next few weeks, and we'll get into some of those things here tonight. So um, chapter 25, beginning of chapter 25, We're going to look at some overlap throughout throughout the remainder of Exodus. Chapters 25 to 31, again, details the instructions for the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. Chapters 35 to 40 then give us the implementation of the tabernacle, the actual building of it. So first off, we get the instructions for the tabernacle. And then at the end, chapters 35 to 40, we'll see a lot of kind of repeat of of um, material as it deals with the implementation of the tabernacle. I have a little chart here that I don't know if I'm gonna be able to bring up here. Do we have keynote going in the back there? Uh, Let's see here. I'll see if I can get this going myself because as of right now, I don't know what's happening. Um, I don't see the, let me try this something here. Let's close that baby down. And let's hope, there we go. I think we got it now. It's coming. Okay, there we go. Hey, all right, so I don't know if you'll be able to see that, don't worry, the rest of the slide is gonna be bigger, but this is the kind of the overlap that we'll see and sort of the, the similarity discussion on the left side, you'll see uh, you know, how we see the instructions for the Tabernacle, chapters 25 to 31. Uh, And then on the other side, kind of the the fulfillment of that, the actual implementation of it, that we'll look at in chapters 35 to to 40. Um, And then uh, there's some more to kind of go through. So we're not gonna take time to just go through that chart, but just to give you a bit of a bird's eye view as to a lot of stuff that we're gonna be talking about. So 13 chapters in the book of Exodus that detail, show you the first slide that we were talking about here. 13 chapters in the book of Exodus that's dealing with the tabernacle, its furnishings, the priests, uh, different things that are to do with the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting, we mentioned chapters 25 to 31, instructions for the tabernacle, chapters 35 to 40, the implementation of the building of the tabernacle, but yeah, we've got some chapters in between, right? We've got chapters 32 to 34, sort of a, a parenthetical passage which reveals the truth now that Moses discovers on the top of the mountain and the trouble that's occurring down below at the bottom of the mountain, right? Remember when he comes down and he sees what's going on in the camp of Israel and there's, there's party and there's there's riding and there's just a lot of uh, bad stuff that's going down there. And it's it's quite like, kind of the reality uh, that we see here during our life. The truth of God is above us while there's sin and trouble here below. And in between, we find that there's a tabernacle where, where troubled man can meet with a truthful God. And that's the beauty of what we see within the tabernacle and why I think there's, there's just a lot of emphasis there for us in it because we see it's here that God desires to meet with his people. Now, throughout the ages, we've seen a lot of beautiful buildings get erected, right? We've seen the Great Pyramids of Egypt, the Palace at Machu Picchu, England's Westminster Abbey, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the Taj Mahal in India, many of these these, uh, great buildings centered around worship, revealing man's innate desire to, to reach God and desire to meet with God, right? And, and though the tabernacle would not stand out in appearance next to these great buildings, the tabernacle was really just a tent, nothing special to behold. Nevertheless, it was the most in, in, important structure ever built because it was the only building designed by God and truly designed for God to where people could meet with the living God. It would be the place where he would dwell and meet with his people more on that to come here so in order to see the structure built well we need some resources right we need to get underway now with okay what do we need to see this tabernacle begin to get formed and come to fruition well that's how the chapter starts out look at chapter 25 verse 1 as we look at the resources for the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, rams, skins, dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, verse seven, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So let me stop right there. So here now, God instructs Moses what's gonna be needed now for the assembly, for the construction of the tabernacle. And so God has Moses speak to the nation of Israel to to bring now this offering to God. Now, I'm I'm sure you caught this, but pay special attention to this. They were to bring it how? Willingly from the heart, right? I love that. This is not a forced, obligatory kind of offering that they're all being told they must do. They were to do it willingly. Moses didn't need to give some kind of, you know, big speech on the value of giving with the the worship team, kind of playing a timely instrumental in the background to kind of manipulate the emotions of the people where people who are going, oh yes, let me just get my wallet out. I just feel the spirit of God moving. There was nothing like that nature to kind of manipulate or pull in the heartstrings of people. It's just, hey, here's a need and those that want to come and give. There's no forcing and and and, and kind of, putting that guilt trip on people to do this. Just make the need known and let people respond as they're being led. Don't curse people, let it be done voluntarily. This is an area that many people sadly think that the church is kind of really all about and what the church is really after. They're just wanting your money, people will say. Oh, they're just out for your money. Sadly, there are a lot of swindlers operating in the name of Christ that are tragically misrepresenting Christ greatly in this area when it comes to finances, money, and, and giving. Yet, there are portions of scripture where God does indeed call us to tithe, to give a, a tenth, to come and, 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 and give to the Lord, that which is due him. It's not because God's needing our money, but more so, God's after your heart. And our view toward money and giving is often a very good indicator of where our heart is at, right? In fact, we read in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you treasuring? What are you holding on to? Well, God continues in the New Testament to call his people to be those that give willingly and to give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, but this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you read that and you go, okay, (laughs) cheerful giving, that's not always something that kind of is, you know, going hand in hand. Sometimes it's very hard to give. I get that, I understand that. So, how can we be cheerful givers when sometimes it feels like such a sacrifice to give? Well, I see a few things here that we can look at. First of all, our giving brings about blessing from God. Now we don't, we don't give to get a blessing. That's what prosperity preachers would love to say. Oh, you need to give, you know, you need to uh, just give this is seed money. And when you plant that seed money, then you're going to reap a harvest of plenty. Your bank account is going to be bursting forth with new life, you know, and they, they make you think that when you do, this is what you're going to get in return. And so your giving now becomes very selfishly motivated. Listen, We don't give for what we can get out of it. Otherwise, like I said, it just becomes a a selfish act with you at the center of it. That would be like me giving my wife for her birthday a set of left-handed golf clubs. That wouldn't be very good, first of all, because she doesn't golf, and secondly, she's not left-handed. I, on the other hand, am. And it'd be a very nice gift for me, but that's not a gift that I would give to my wife. That'd be very selfishly motivated. It's not, it's not adding up. It's not a proper gift. But we can take joy in giving knowing that God is going to take care of us. You're not gonna lose out in giving. You're gonna be blessed because the word of God says that when you sow bountifully, you're gonna reap bountifully. We don't give for that purpose or with that motivation. We just know that that's the way that God works. That when we give, we're showing our faith and trust in him that he's gonna take care of us and, and we get to see him do so. Secondly, our giving contributes to the work of God. See, the items that the people gave all went into the construction of the tabernacle. Chapter 25 doesn't start with God saying, you know what, I don't think that people have been given very much, they've, they've been hoarding and I need something. These were all the items that were gonna be used towards the construction of the tabernacle. Their giving would be contributing to the work of God and seeing his purposes coming to fruition and and prevailing. Yeah, the Lord could have just dropped down a tabernacle from heaven, all ready to go, and had it all set up. But here's the great thing. He allows the people to participate in his work and to be contributors in his plans and there's something so wonderful about that again there's much joy that comes when we get to partner with what God is doing and know that he allowed us to be a part of it see when you give to Riverside it's not just so that I can Go buy a new set of left-handed golf clubs. No, that's not, the, that's not the issue here. It's so that we can continue to see the gospel spread, to see lives changed through the good news. So we can continue to see the work of outreach or, or Bible studies, activities, missions take forth, uh, take uh, or go forth that are gonna see lives transformed Him. That's, that's what we're all about. That's what we desire to see happen. So giving contributes to that work of God that he desires to do in and through his church. So that's where we can begin to be cheerful givers when we know we're not just giving into some kind of unworthy cause or to a person, we're giving so that the work of God can continue to flourish. Thirdly, our giving reveals our gratitude to God. See, when we give, we're simply returning to God what he's so graciously given to us to begin with. We're acknowledging that, that he's the ultimate giver, and we're just the stewards of what he's entrusted to us. Now think about this. Look at what we read in Exodus 3, or 25 verse 3. This is the offering which you shall take from the gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and cashew wood. Let me stop right there. Where did... The Israelites get all these things from Egypt, yeah. Remember what God said. Listen, when you go out, when I deliver you, in fact, let me just read it to you here. Exodus 30, uh, let's see. Exodus 3, 21 and 22, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, Articles of gold, clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Wow. God was blessing his people. He was, he was giving to them as they were making their exodus out of Egypt. And now, see the people were not rich because they worked so hard for it. They're rich because God graciously gave to them. And now they get to respond back. To God by giving from what they've already received from him. That's how we need to look at giving, isn't it? This isn't my money. Oh, yeah, we may have worked, but we thank God that he's given us a job. He's given us the ability to work. He's given us the strength to continue on to to earn a paycheck. And and so we want to honor the Lord with what he's entrusted to us and given to us so graciously. That's how you look at giving, not so much from a sacrificial, oh man, this is gonna hurt me kind of position, but from a thank you God for all that you've given me. I wanna honor you now with the first fruits of this gift. This is what brings cheerfulness to our giving. This is what causes us to wanna come willingly and to give from a heart. Now, skipping ahead to when again we see now at the end of Exodus, the implementation of all these things. Look at what we read in Exodus 36, verse six to seven. I love this. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for the work to be done. Indeed, too much. Wow, those are words you'll never hear me say around here, I'll tell you that much. But wow, isn't that awesome that the people gave so willingly that there was so much coming in. They're like, guys, we got enough. We're good to go. And isn't it wonderful when everybody just just shares in the, the area of giving and, and, and contributions, man. It just makes things so wonderful. And so we see that the needs were met and the work of the Lord flourished. You know, giving is not something that we often talk about here in Riverside. Uh, A lot of people kind of question, well, how come you don't pass a plate around? How come you don't do this? How come you don't do that? how come you don't talk? Now we're going to, I mean, you know, here we are talking about giving, right? And and how to give. We're going to cover when it comes up in the word of God, no doubt about that. I'm going to, I'm going to stop and make sure we hit that well, you know, but we're not going to make every little, you know, tie-in to a sermon to try to be about giving. We want that to be between you and the Lord, and we want that to be an act of of worship that you do in the Lord, that's what we get to do in giving, and so we provide opportunities here to give. Though we may not pass a plate around and, and make that a part of our worship service, it is certainly a part of our worship to the Lord to give. You know, it's been said more than 400 Bible passages talk specifically about money, as well as many others that teach general principles for Christian stewardship. Exodus 25 is one of those passages. The instructions God gave to Moses teach us to give our very best to God from the heart for his holy work. So I pray that we be worshipers in how we give and that we be faithful in honoring the Lord through what he's given to us, that his work may continue on. And so we see that happening here in in Exodus. Now picking it up in verse eight, we begin to look at now again the funds coming in for the tabernacle the resources for the tabernacle secondly here now let's look at the purposes for the tabernacle verse 8 and 9 begin to lay some of those out for us here it says in verse 8 and let them make me a sanctuary and that i may dwell among them according to all that i show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings just so you shall make it So we see the purpose of the tabernacle. And and first of all, one of the purposes was that it was to be a sanctuary, it says. Now the word in Hebrew is mikdash, which means a sacred place or a holy place. The tabernacle was to be a place that was set apart from anything that was sinful or defiled, and is to be a sanctified place that was now consecrated to God and for God. Why was this place to be set apart and kept from defilement or sin? Well, the answer is in our second purpose of the tabernacle. The second purpose for the temple or for the tabernacle was that God may dwell among his people. It's right there in in verse 8, that I may dwell among them. See God wanted a place set apart, but not so that he would be set apart from the people, but so that he may dwell among the people. He wanted to reveal his glory and majesty to them in a tangible way. This word dwell, in the Hebrew, is the word shekinah. We get the non-biblical word shekinah from this word. We use Shekinah to reveal or to refer to the, the visible glory of God, the Shekinah glory. We'll talk about, you know, the cloud that rested among the, the tabernacle. We'll say, oh, it's the Shekinah glory of God. It's not a word found in the Bible, but it comes from this word to dwell. And that's what this word dwell is all about. It means to to settle, to reside, to abide, or to inhabit. That's what God desired to do, was to come and settle among the people, to dwell among them, to, to reside with them. That's what he desired to do through the tabernacle. And the amazing thing is that this is what Jesus came to reveal when he took on flesh, tells us in john 1 14 and the word that we know from beginning of john 1 that the word was god right speaking of jesus christ the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth you know it says that the word became flesh and dwelt that word dwelt is the word tabernacled The tabernacle would be a place for God to reveal his glory, and Jesus came to tabernacle among us to reveal the fullness of God and his glory. So we see in Jesus, that was the purpose of the tabernacle, was for God to dwell tangibly, to settle, to reside among them and reveal his glory. Thirdly, we see through scripture that the tabernacle was sometimes referenced as the tent of meeting the tent of meeting. That's a great reminder for us because it's here that God desired to meet with his people, right? There was allowance for Israel to come before God through the high priest of Israel who is interceding on behalf of the nation to come and, and meet with God. Again, what a great picture of Jesus. Hebrews seven twenty-five. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 4, 6 says, let us now come boldly to the throne of grace. So we have access now to come and, and meet with God in and through Jesus Christ. That's the very purpose of the, the tabernacle, this tent of meeting, to meet with God. Interestingly, as we see the purposes for this tabernacle and God dwelling among and meeting with his people, The tabernacle would be situated in the very middle of the camp of Israel. Whenever they would move and stop, the tabernacle would sit in the middle with the various tribes of Israel camped around the tabernacle. God desired to be at the center of the nation of Israel. Just as I pray, we desire to see Jesus come and reside and be the very center That everything that we're doing is, is revolving around Christ. That Christ isn't sitting way over here that we go once in a while to meet with, but rather that he's dwelling at the very center of our being and that everything we're doing is centering around him. You know, the very, the very picture of the tabernacle being among the nations of, or the tribes of Israel, lay out some of the tribes that were to be camped around them here and these are uh, some of the banners that were representing these tribes in these various positions here uh, the lion and the ox. Um, and, and interesting, these are all again, what the four gospels are representing. Jesus, you know, as uh, the king, uh, referenced in the, in the line, Jesus as the son of man, as the suffering servant, uh, the ox. Uh, John writes about the deity of Christ seen in the eagle. And, and we see the number of these tribes. Um, numbers gives us exactly how many people were in those tribes. And so what's very interesting, as you see these tribes, all centered around the tabernacle, what would it picture for us? The cross. You see those numbers that are given there. And how interestingly, that if you were to do a flyby over the tribes of Israel camped around the tabernacle, we would have for us the cross. How awesome is that in God's just wisdom in bringing all these things together. Well, notice in verse nine, back in Exodus 25, verse nine, According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So Moses here wasn't to take any kind of artistic license in, you know, creating or designing the tabernacle. There was to be no freestyling on the plants, going, you know what? I think, God, I'm going to rather knock out this wall. I'm going to put out a little addition over here. I think that's going to be really good. Just trust me on this one. It's going to be great. No. God says, as the patterns that I've given you, just so you shall make it. Everything was to be done in the right way, and in a a certain way so much so that God repeats it again at the end of chapter 25 verse 40 if you just look over there with me verse 40 and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which is shown you on the mountain see to it Moses don't change things up don't do any freestyle here do it exactly as I've given to you why was this so important because The patterns that God was giving Moses for the tabernacle and its furnishings was according to the pattern of heaven. The tabernacle was an earthly replica of the heavenly reality. How awesome is that? We see that in Hebrews 8, verse 4 to 5. For if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed, when he was about to make the tabernacle for he said, "See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, because it would be replicating what was already seen in heaven." Revelation 11:19 says, "Then the temple of God was opened in heaven." And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. See, what Moses was called to replicate here on earth with the tabernacle was the very scene around God's throne in heaven. How awesome is that? That's why studying the tabernacle is not a boring, painful procedure. We see some amazing symbols and types that reveal the glory of God, and they become a wonderful picture of Jesus for us as well. Well, let's look at some of these furnishings of the tabernacle here. Verse 10 begins to lay out for us here now the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Testimony, verse 10. Now, first of all, when you would walk into the tabernacle, the Ark would not be the first thing that you would see. You would see The lampstand on the left, you'd see the table of showbread on the right. And that would be walking into um, the holy place. But then that holy place had a curtain separating it from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it was in the holy of holies that the Ark of the Covenant sat. So why are we jumping into this? How come we're not kind of doing the tour in order? Because it's the Ark of the Testament, the Ark of the Covenant that was the most important, that kind of had the priority because of the role that it's going to play. Look at verse 10. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall... Cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of a wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Let me stop right there. So the ark here was essentially this, this box. Uh, a cubit was about 18 inches. So the length of this ark was 3 feet 9 inches. The, the width was 2 feet 3 inches, and its height was 2 feet 3 inches. All right? Putting that into kind of our, our, our measurement uh, today. And this ark, again, was just a, a wonderful picture of Jesus in and of itself. We see that it was made of acacia wood. It speaks of humanity. Jesus came... As a man, and was clothed in humanity. And yet, this ark was what? Overlaid with gold. Just as Jesus came in a human form, and yet that gold speaks of deity. Jesus was fully man, yet was fully God. He never removed himself from deity. Just as the ark would have both wood and gold, Jesus came as fully man, yet was fully God. That's a great mystery to us. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So the ark here, just in how it was constructed, speaks of Jesus. And then we see how it would have four rings for gold, four... And, and poles put through it. See, the ark was to be carried by these poles. Nobody was to touch it. It was to be revered as holy. Now remember a couple times in scripture, we see when it wasn't. Once when David was looking to move the tabernacle and they put up on a cart and they're moving along and then suddenly the oxen stumbled and the, and the, and the cart began to get a little bit shaky and the ark began, and remember Uzzah. Reaches out his hand, poor, Man, the guy's just trying to help, right? Guy's like, I don't want the ark to fall! Reaches out, touches it, and he was struck dead. Again, because what we think is right must never trump or supersede what the word of God says. The ark was not to be touched. It was to be revered as, as holy. And then in 1 Samuel, we see an account again where uh the israelites and philistines were were fighting and the israelites think hey you know what man i know how we can defeat the philistines let's bring our lucky charm with us the ark of the covenant let's bring that out of the battlefield and they brought the ark of the covenant thinking that this was going to be their their good luck charm and yet what happened they were defeated by the philistines and the philistines captured the ark of the covenant but the story just gets better because remember what the philistines do they bring the ark into the temple of dagon their god was dagon or they had a dagon god something like that right and so they put the ark of the covenant next to dagon thinking ah we're gonna put the ark of the covenant kind of in submission to dagon they leave it they come back the next morning what happens dagon flat on the ground ah! Our God, let's help our God. That's not the God you want to serve, right? So they prop up their God, Dagon, like, okay, stay put, man. Don't let this little Ark of the Covenant scare you, right? And they leave and they come back the next day. Once again, Dagon is down on the ground. Well, this time his head's broken off. His hands, arms are broken off. Again, seeing how the Ark, a a, a symbol, a picture, of what God desired to do was to be revered. The ark was to be holy and treated as such as it represented the presence of God. Look at verse 16, back in Exodus 25 with me. It says, And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a, a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. So here's what the ark of the covenant would have looked um, much like here, with the two cherubim, these angels, on top of that mercy seat, that was like the lid, right, upon, uh, uh, upon this ark. And, and again, looking at how the ark is a picture of Jesus, we saw that it was made of wood, picturing the humanity of Jesus, overlay with gold, picturing the, the deity of Jesus. Thirdly here, we see how the ark was a picture of Jesus because it contained the testimony within. Just like we read in verse 16, you shall put the, into the ark the testimony which I'll give you. Remember Moses up on the mountain and, and he's receiving these 10 commandments. God's gonna write them out on, on two tablets of stone and Moses is instructed to put those 10 commandments, the testimony or the law of God into the ark that speaks to the the righteousness of jesus see jesus he alone came and fulfilled the very law the very law that we had broken that we were unable to unable to approach god based on our own righteousness jesus himself did see we're not saved by the law the law is meant to drive us to jesus who's fulfilled all those requirements of God. And on top of the ark, like we said, two cherubim. All around the tabernacle were images of cherubim and angels. It was, again, a reflection of what was taking place in the heavenlies. Angels are continuously around the throne of God, worshiping God, they're bowing before him. As these two angels, it says, as they reach their wings out over the mercy seat with their faces toward the mercy seat, they're they're bowing down. Angels also serve as a sign of the presence and work of God. If they are near, God is working. Now the reason this ark was such a priority is because God says it's here at the mercy seat that he would meet with them. It's The fourth picture of Jesus we see within this ark is this mercy seat. Let's talk about that. It says in verse 22, again, and there I'll meet with you, and I'll speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I'll give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now remember this ark sat in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle, like I mentioned, was was divided up here. You'd walk in, you'd be in the holy place. Lampstand on the left, table showbread on the right, uh, altar of incense at the curtain, and then the curtain dividing the the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. So there's the the tabernacle, or sorry, the 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 ark sitting in the holy of holies, and it was in the holy of holies that only the high priest could enter into, and that was only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. So the the Holy of Holies only saw somebody go in before the Ark of the Covenant one day of the year. And on that day, the priest was to come in after offering the sacrifice on behalf of the nation and for their sin, and come in and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. And it was to atone for the people's sin. Over the mercy seat hovered the presence of God. Under the mercy seat sat what? The the testimony, the Ten Commandments, the demands of the law. But between the two, on that bloodstained lid, God's mercy and his justice were reconciled by the blood of a sacrifice. The mercy seat was the one place on earth where men and women could obtain God's mercy. And today... There's still only one place for men and women to experience the mercy of God. It's no longer a lid, it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can put a lid on the condemnation that the law brought us, right? We're all seen guilty if we try to uphold the law, if we think the law is gonna find merit for us to come before God. We're all gonna be found guilty. The law brings condemnation and judgment Jesus, however, stands in our place and he provides mercy. In him, God's mercy, God's justice and mercy are reconciled. Sin needs to be judged. But Jesus took that for us and provides mercy. God has provided a place of mercy by which we can be reconciled to him and now enjoy his presence. Now, Paul links uh, a very interesting Word to this mercy seat. It says in Romans 3 21 to 25, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Paul uses a word to associate with the mercy seat. It's the word propitiation. That word is referencing the mercy seat. It's in Christ that God not only covers our sin, but now completely removes it and he brings forgiveness and mercy and grace. The cross of Christ has become our mercy seat. We're redeemed in and through him. And now we have the privilege of meeting with God, of experiencing, as God says, it's here that I'll meet with you. There's no other place that we can experience that, my friends. We need to understand that. A lot of people like to approach God based on another person. Maybe it's based on a church. Maybe it's based on their good works. But there's no other way by which we can come and approach God and meet with God except through Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed for us. Providing that propitiation. Bringing about that mercy and forgiveness that we so desperately needed. Jesus has provided it all for us now. And this ark so wonderfully pictures what Jesus has accomplished for us. Verse 23, we move on to look at now the table of showbread. It says in verse 23, You shall also make a table of a cassia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around and you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. Verse 27, the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of a cast of wood and overlay them with gold and the table that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So not only do we get the privilege of meeting with God, there are those of you that have had meetings with people that maybe you're not like looking forward to. Maybe remember back in school, you get called the principal's office. I'm going to meet with the principal. That's not always a, a, a fun thing. But here we recognize not only do we get to meet with God, but we get to enjoy fellowship with God. Something more wonderful pictured for us here because this table now speaks of that substance of this fellowship. This table would be this table of showbread. Bread, bread, was always that, that picture of fellowship because in this day in the Middle East, when you broke bread with somebody, that was significant. You were like sharing one another. You're, you're dipping that bread into sauces, you didn't pour one sauce for that person and another sauce for this person. You're just sharing a communal bowl and you're sharing a lot of germs. You're sharing some you know, DNA. It's like we're, we're becoming one here. We're enjoying some, some intimate fellowship now. That was the idea when you broke bread with something. That was like significant. And here's now this table of showbread by which God is revealing the sweet fellowship. We get to enjoy with him. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter six, that he came to be the bread of life. that We might experience life in him, that he would sustain us and nourish us, provide for us. This bread becomes a great picture too, the word of God. Just as in Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this bread here that's being provided in the tabernacle would would now feed the priests that were ministering in the tabernacle. As they would eat this bread each Sabbath, it reminds us how the nation of Israel was to feed a hungry world with the spiritual bread that God was providing for them. And today, we're to go into the world and make disciples. How? Take the word of God to a hungry world. How we need to be in the Word of God. And, and look at what it says in verse 30. You shall eat, or set the showbread on the table before me always. Oh, may we always have the Word of God before us. May we always be looking to enjoy fellowship with God. See, that's the beauty of this here, my friends, is, again, reading the Word of God is not to be some kind of religious requirement, or exercise that we do to check off a list of, of how good we're doing. And we get into the word of God so we can meet with God, so we can have fellowship with him, so we can hear from him, that we can spend time, because this is the very living word of God, the heart of God that has been expressed to you. And it's here that God's gonna speak to you. It's here that you're gonna enjoy fellowship with God. So I encourage you, Keep setting the word before you. Keep setting the Lord before you through his word. And so notice two stacks of bread, six on each side, representing the, the 12 tribes. The bread served as a reminder that every tribe played a role in the family of God. Each tribe had a seat at the table. No one's exempt. I love that. Verse 31, continuing on, the gold lampstand. It says there in verse 31, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. These or three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. So this lampstand now would be a source of light in the tabernacle. It, it would illuminate the way, be the only source of light in the tabernacle. And just as that lampstand sat and illuminated the way, what did Jesus come and do and say, John eight twelve said, I am the light of the world. And when did Jesus shine the brightest? It's probably the darkest moment in, in history when the Son of God was betrayed, beaten, and brutally nailed to the cross. Notice this lampstand, it says in verse 31, would be of hammered work. In the same way, And God allows us to go through hardships. Sometimes we feel hammered by the pressures of life, but they all become opportunities for us to shine our light for God. Because it's often in these darkest moments that the light shines through the brightest. And God allows us and us to go through those experiences that we might all the more be shining forth that light of Jesus. We're gonna talk a bit about that on Sunday in 2 Corinthians 1, I'll leave it for that here. But notice there were three branches on each side, six branches stemming from the, the middle stem. Six is the number of man, but notice when connected to Christ, right? We're complete. Seven is the number of completion, and there's seven uh, lamps that would be burning there. And then on each of these branches were three bowls, looking like almond blossoms. Why bowls? The bowls would be holding the oil if we're going to shine bright for jesus then guess what we need to have our lamps filled with oil and what's that a picture of the holy spirit when we're walking in the power of the holy spirit we're going to be fruitful as witnesses of god allowing that light to shine bright verse 34 on the lampstand itself four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms each with its ornamental knob and flower there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to six branches that extend from the lampstand. I was trying to think of maybe like a, a picture uh, for all the knobs. Other maybe just that it's communicating, You're just all a bunch of knobs. So, their knobs and their branches shall be, but God still works for you. So, uh, their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammer. Of pure gold, verse 37, you shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it, and its wick trimmers, and their tray shall be of pure gold. that shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And again, verse 40, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. We've already seen how important that was. But here now we see again just final instruction for the building that and how the wicks would need to be trimmed. Just like branches need to be pruned so that it encourages further growth, so too wicks need to be trimmed, so that they will continue to burn bright and keep shining that light. And, and God at times is gonna come along and, and need to do at times necessary pruning or trimming of those wicks to cut away those things that may hinder growth and prevent us from shining our light for Jesus. But again, just like a father knows how to discipline his son, God chastens those whom he loves. And there's times where he's going to do that pruning or trimming, not out of judgment or hurt, but to cause us to grow all the more and to be shining even brighter for him. Well, let's wrap it up here with looking at the tabernacle, and again, just how it's such a wonderful picture of Jesus. First of all, we see the tabernacle was temporary. Just as the tabernacle was to be a temporary setup until the temple would be built in Jerusalem, so too Jesus came and dwelt among us temporarily. Jesus came to this earth, lived for about 33 years, went to heaven, but praise the Lord, he's preparing a place for us that where he is, we might be also. Second, the tabernacle was used in the wilderness. Jesus came and lived a life in the wilderness. And, and he came to a very barren world that needed him. He didn't separate himself. He was there in the wilderness. He said himself, foxes have holes and birds there have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived a life without a a permanent address. Not only was he tempted in the wilderness, but he lived a life without the comforts that was due a king. Thirdly, the tabernacle was of humble appearance outwardly. You know, the tabernacle, again, like I said, it's kind of a glorified tent, nothing special about it. Nothing too aesthetic to look at. Similarly, Jesus came as a very ordinary man. Isaiah 53, two says, that he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Remember, Judas had to come and, and reveal to the soldiers his identity. Nothing special. Outwardly, but as you got to know him, you see the beauty that Jesus was all about. Fourthly, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. Now, though humble and in Appearance outwardly, again, Jesus beautiful inside. And the tabernacle beautiful inside because it's where God dwelt. Again, Jesus came to dwell among us as Emmanuel, God, with us. The scene at the Mount of Transfiguration revealed the glory that Jesus had inside. Fifthly, the tabernacle would be the meeting place between God and man. Jesus too said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can meet with God based on Christ's righteousness, just as God can meet with us now because of Christ's righteousness. And the tabernacle had only one door of entrance. The tabernacle sat within the courtyard with a fence all around, and there's only one door of entrance. Jesus said, I'm the door. There's only one way through the Father and that's through Jesus and lastly the tabernacle was to be moved it would be packed up and carted off as Jesus would go before them by a, a cloud by day a pillar of fire at night whenever God was on the move they'd be on the move they'd pack this up it was to be moved Jesus who was eternally existent also left his place in the heavens, took up residence here on earth, and then was again at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? He's getting ready to be on the move again, as we will, as he will meet us in the clouds, and he take us to where he is. What a day that's going to be! I pray that we are ready to be on the move, but in the meantime, that we continue to serve our Lord well, that we continue to be a giving bunch that we continue to worship him through these means, and that we continue to be that witness of the Lord, just as this tabernacle was as well. It's a precious picture that we see that reminds us of the person of Jesus Christ and his ministry. We're gonna look at a lot more things as we continue on here, but uh, yeah, we'll leave it for then. I pray you'll you'll come back and continue to just glean off of Exodus here and these great pictures and types that we see. Uh, Why don't we pray? Let's stand together. Let's pray, worship team. Let's come and close with a song here. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you humbly. We thank you, God, for who you are. And the very things that you are reminding us of through the tabernacle, something that we would think that's so yesterday, that's Old Testament, and yet within the tabernacle, we see exactly your very heart and your plan and would be accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've always provided a place, a way for people to know you and meet with you, And thank you that you've made that oh so easy today through your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we'll continue to abide in Christ. We'll continue to enjoy sweet fellowship we get to have now in you because of your son. Lord, help us to see again just how awesome and holy you are and the extreme privilege we have being able to approach you. And Lord, I pray that we would live in a way where we'll continue to be a witness and allowing our light to shine for you, Jesus, that others may come and take part in the beauty of fellowship and relationship with you, because you provided mercy for them. You provided grace, but it's through Jesus, and so may we continue to reflect jesus in our lives to your glory and praise we ask in your name amen